0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. It's a delight to think about and learn about slichot with you today, um, especially, I mean, if you're Sephardi, you've been maybe saying slichot. Uh, if you're Ashkenazi, we're ge- we're gearing up, um, and if you're in a non-binary space of Ashkenazi Sparty, who knows what you're doing. Um, but we are thrilled to learn with you and to learn with Rabbi Leah Sarna, really a great Torah scholar and uh, Jewish leader. Great to be with her, and I'm going to pass it over to my colleague Rabbi Yaakov Chaitavsky, since we are happy to partner with BMH BJ Synagogue today on this program, and he's going to offer our intro of our scholar today.
1: Thank you, Reb Shmuley, and uh, thank you, welcome to everyone who's here. Um, we're going to be exploring the, um, a, a, a famous prayer. It's become almost a refrain for the High Holy Days. And to many people, it almost seems like a magic incantation that seems to push God's buttons in the appropriate way and magically give us the clean slate we're looking for. It worked that way once, and we always hope that it'll work that way again. Um, and to help us explore this is Rabbanit Leah Sarna, who currently serves as uh, an associate director of education and director of high school programs at Drisha, a very forward thinking uh, woman's learning uh, institution founded in New York. She had been a director of religious education at Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel congregation in Chicago, a leading urban uh, Orthodox congregation has ordination from Yeshivat Maharat, a BA from Yale University in philosophy and psychology, and also studied and was trained at the Beit Midrash for women in Israel at Migdal Oz at Derisha, at the Center for Modern Torah Leadership in Boston. She was a Wexner graduate fellow and a winner of the Covenant Foundation's Pomegranate Prize. Her published works have appeared in in The Atlantic, the Washington Post, Lair House, um, and the Jewish Review of Books. And she has lectured in Orthodox synagogues and Jewish communal settings around the world and has a love of Torah and mitzvot, a love of Jewish learning, comes by that very honestly in her family. I have to be honest with you. And uh, she likes sharing her energy and her love in a very warm and engaging style with anyone who will listen. And today, we are the lucky ones to be able to do that. So without any further ado, Rabbanit Sarna.
2: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Thank you to Valu Baby Drash and all the sponsors. It's such a privilege to be here learning with you and thinking about Slichot, uh, which are either, as uh, Rabbi Chaitosky said, ongoing, or, or as and, and Shmueli also, also said, ongoing, or maybe you're going to start like me, this uh, a Shabbat, but it's always a good time to talk about Slichot because we see them not only this time of year, but we also see them on most fast days, which means that this is a refrain that carries us throughout the year and kind of all of the solemn parts of the year. And it's worth thinking about kind of when we are reciting these words, not just like, what am I doing? Oh, I'm saying these words, but like, what am I doing when I'm saying these words? And in order to kind of get at that, we're going to look at uh, the heart. Where Where did these words come from? Because I think that what we're doing, I'll just tell you the thesis from the beginning. Sometimes I think that helps people learn when you just kind of reveal it from the start and then prove it. And then we'll reveal it with even more emphasis at the end. Um, is um, that I think what we're doing is we're reenacting a moment. We're reenacting a moment of incredible intimacy between human beings and Hashem and God. Um, and we're trying to say, yeah, like let's let's get back to that. So what what is that moment? When did it happen? How did it happen? Um, I think we sometimes take these verses out of context. Even though our liturgy itself brings the context, narrates the context with it, there's actually even more context that could be given. And I I like to tell people, you know, if you want to prepare for the high holidays in one way, the way to do it is to read the 33rd and 34th chapters of the book of Exodus. And so that's what we're going to be doing at the beginning. We'll look at some other texts also, um, and hopefully um, that, that will be helpful to everyone as we look towards the high holidays. I'm going to share my screen, but you also, um, I don't know whether this was distributed by email some way in advance also, Um, maybe it was, Uh, but hopefully you can all see this and I tried to make it nice and big. Um, Just a warning in advance that this is gonna be a little bit participatory, so if I ask you a question, I, I really mean it, um, and I'll 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 stop sharing my screen and I'll um and I'll you know look for look for people to chime in. So hopefully uh, that's something that we'll be able to do a little bit. Okay, so here's the scene. Um, it, Moses got the Ten Commandments, and then the um, sin of the golden calf heaven and the tablets were broken. And now it gets even worse because God says to Moshe, God says to Moses, set out from here, you and the people you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will send an angel before you but I will not go in your midst. Why is God not gonna go in our midst? Because you are stiff-necked people, lest I destroy you on the way. God says, this is not gonna work. I made a promise to your forefathers that the land is gonna be yours. I'm gonna keep my side of the promise. You're gonna go, but Moses, you're the one who's gonna lead them. If you don't know the way, I'm gonna send an angel, a messenger to lead you there. But I, God, I have to retract. I can't be around these people. These people are toxic. These people are bad for me. I'm too angry. They're too stiff-necked. I'm going to end up destroying them and therefore not keeping my word, says God, if I go with, So I'm I'm not coming. I'm going to step aside, says God. And all the people hear this, and they go into mourning and they... They, they stop wearing jewelry. So it's not just, oh, I'm sad, but there's this kind of public, physical manifestation of the morning. And and God sees this, this morning and says, now we're in verse five. Um, God says to Moses, God, God digs in God's heels, right? Say to the Israelite people, no, this is not happening. You're too stiff-necked. I'm too angry. If I go back to leading you, I will destroy all of you. So, okay, you took off your jewelry. Fine, keep it off. See if I care. I don't care. Leave off your finery. That's what's happening. Um, And then there's, okay, there's like a a kind of an aside that happens in Tanakh there. We pick the story back up at verse 12. Moses says back to God, see, you say to me, lead the people forward, but you have not made known to me whom you will send with me. And so, right. So Moshe says, okay, you told me you're sending someone, but who is that someone who's going to actually tell us where to go? Tell us how to do it. You promised me I wouldn't. Moshe says to Hashem, you promised me I wouldn't be alone. And I kind of feel pretty alone right now. Like what's, the plan, right, you have not revealed it to me, you haven't shown to me, um, and furthermore, you have said, I have singled you out by name, and you have indeed gained my favor, right, Moshe says you told me that you liked me, <laughs> okay, well, if you like me, that's you me you me, So pray, let me know your ways that I may know you and continue in your favor. And once you've shown me how to continue to be in your favor, consider too that this nation is your people. This nation is your people. So first of all, you said you liked me. If you like me, show me how to maintain our relationship. Show me what to do so that you can keep on liking me, says Hashem. And also remember, like, these are your people. Um, so Hashem says back, I will go in the lead and will lighten your burden. And it seems like here Hashem is saying, yeah, actually, um, you know what? Maybe it is going to be me that's going to show you the way. Um, and Moses says back to God, unless you go in the, in, in the lead, do not make us leave this place. Moses says back to Hashem, yeah, actually, you're going to do that. And if you're not going to do that, we're going on strike. We're not going to go into the land without you, actually. Because how, how is anyone else going to know? Um, if you don't go with us, how is anyone else going to know that you like us, that you like me, that you like our people, that you like this nation? hello, they're only going to know it, God, if you come with us. And we will be distinguished. We will be a pellet, um, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth. The only way that people are going to know that we're your chosen people, that we're your special people, that we have found favor in your eyes, God, is if you come with us. And you said that you found that we've found favor in your eyes um and so Hashan kind of gives in yes Moshe you're right you have gained my favor I've singled you out by name and I will come I will I will come with you and Moshe says actually you know going in front of the people coming with us on this journey it's actually not enough I want more. I want to see you more. I want to believe more. I want more closeness to you. Let me behold your presence. And Hashem says back, okay. I'm just warning you in a second. I'm going to want some participation. So God answered, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you the name Lord and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. So I, karati vashim hashama fanacha, I'm going to call out the name of God before you. Very interesting. And then I will reveal to you the grace that I grant, the compassion that I show. But just so you know, you cannot see my face for man cannot see my face and man cannot see me and live. And then they go into this special place. So God says, I'm going to put you, or in verse 21, hatzur, I'm going to put you in this rock cleft, and my presence will pass by. And I'll put you in this cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. So Moses had said, Show me your glory, let me behold your presence. And God says, I don't exactly think so. I'm not exactly going to do that. But I'll get you the closest that anyone could ever come. Anyone will ever come. I'm going to put you on this rock, in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by you. But you won't actually be able to see anything. I'm going to cover you with my hand. But, verse 23, I'll take my hand away. Then I'll take my hand away. You'll see my back but my face cannot be seen. So the most of any seeing of God that has ever happened, the closest that any human being will ever come to God is to see the back of God's head. Moses sees the back of God's head. Of course, there's all this like anthropomorphism here. Does God have a body? But really like if you read the Torah, the Torah repeatedly, God has a body. So Maimonides has obviously lots to say about this and the should reflex in other places. Um, how are we supposed to understand this? Isn't God kind of above having a body? Um, So first of all, you could just say, no, in lots of places in your tradition, God has a body. If you read, the kind of proto-Kabbalistic text called the Shior Koma. The Shior Koma says, not only does God have a body, but let me tell you all the measurements of God. Um, and um, and so there's definitely, you know, lots of lots of pieces of the Jewish tradition that, that do sort of emphasize that God does have a body. Um, but even if you don't like the idea of a body, then if you're a Maimonidean, which is definitely my tendency, you can certainly say that the body helps us like come it's a it's a metaphor and it helps us understand what is the the when we're trying to think about closeness with god this like physicality uh, and human language for physicality is all about embodied physicality though so i guess like in covid times we sort of learned how to feel close to people even without physical closeness and yet we also learned that really nothing can compare to physical closeness and so the closest that anyone ever came is metaphorized through this idea of I'll cover you with my hand and you'll see the back of my head. And that's the closest any human being can ever come to God. Um, So that's that's what happens in this moment when God says, yes, I'll agree to come with you. And Moshe says, you need to agree to more than that. You need to agree to closeness with us not just with the whole people, so that everyone will see that we are your chosen people and that we've been chosen and separated and designated, distinguished out from amongst all other people. I want a closeness with you that is physical, that is intense, I wanna see it. Um, And God, God admits to that, God says, okay. And more than that, there's gonna be a physical kind of documentation of this closeness with the second set of tablets. Um, so now we have, right, this commandment, Mm -hmm. we're gonna carve two tablets of stone, and tied up in that carving of these two tablets is the forgiveness of people for the sin of the golden calf, for their, uh, for the breaking of the first set of tablets, it is the creation of this new set, and this new set is a partnership, right, it's, God says to Moshe, you're going to carve two stone tablets like the first, and I will inscribe upon the tablets." So, um, Okay. You're ready in the morning. You're going to come up. No one else will come up with you. So that's what Moshe does. Moses carved two stone tablets, two tablets of stone like the first goes up. Um, and okay. So now is the first one, right? When we first saw this, it was all in the here, planning phase. It was all in the phase of this is what's, this is what Moshe makes the request. God says, yes, I'm going to do it, but only in this very particular kind of way. And now is when it actually happened. So, so, right, all the things that what God, Moshe says to Hashem, show me your glory. God, Hashem says, yes, I will, but only in this exact way. And now this is when it's actually coming to pass. Um, so, right, the Lord comes down in a cloud he stood with him there. Okay, here's the participation part. Called out and proclaimed the name Lord. Who here is proclaiming the name Lord exactly? Right. Moses is standing there with his two tablets. He's gone up. He did everything as planned. He's now standing um, waiting for God to show him his back and and to, for God's grace to be revealed. And this is exactly what was described above, right? God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you the name Lord. And here's where that's happening. He stood there and proclaimed the name Lord. So in the first part, it seems, when it's being planned, it seems like God is gonna do the proclaiming. But when you read it here, who's doing the proclaiming? Okay, I'm gonna stop sharing my screen for a second. And I want you to tell me who you think is doing the proclaiming here. Who's calling out? I don't
3: know.
2: Okay, so I'm going to butcher your name. I apologize in advance. Aglaya, Thank you. Appreciate it. Rhymes with Aguila. Yeah. Um, Aglaya says it's God calling out. Just like, right, God said, I'm going to come down. I'm going to call out my name. And that's exactly what's happening here. And that makes sense, right? What's what's your evidence for, for it being God?
4: Okay, Um. just to, all right, it's going to sound really weird, though, but the way that the, um, the way that the verse is written, just, okay, so you have the capital He, and then you have a lowercase him, so lowercase him is Moses, and then the capital, you know, H-He is Hashem. Well, before You know, God said, I'm going to proclaim the name of God. And it's just striking me as, okay, that is what happened just because of the fact that you have the two pronouns written the way that they are. And because the two pronouns are written the way that they are, and you now have the, what happens later on, the fulfillment of it.
2: Okay. So it seems like, right, this is the fulfillment when it's foretold, it's going to be God who's going to proclaim it. So it seems like it's God because God said that that's what's going to happen usually than what happened. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to push back on your first argument mm-hmm. because normally when we have um when something is ambiguous, like who did it? So it would usually refer to like the person right before. If it refers to the person right before, then that's the lowercase him right. Right. So then that would be Moses actually mm-hmm. in the ambiguity. Someone else also came off mute at the same time as agla. Does someone have a different a different guess as to who it was or a different, Understanding.
3: I just wanted to say that it is ambiguous.
2: Yeah, is your name Diane? Uh,
3: my name is Dove.
2: Dove. Okay, thanks, Dove. Um, so Dove says, yeah, it's it's ambiguous. And Dove, what do you um, what do you make of that ambiguity? Um,
3: I think even in context, it's ambiguous, and um, and therefore you really have, have a tremendous challenge to choose. Uh, you don't have to choose one way over another, but you have to perhaps uh, have multiple readings in order to find some truth here.
2: Very nice. Um, does anyone else have any thoughts on this? Or we can kick it forward. Just if, if you have the source in front of you, I'm not, I'm not going to share my screen again, but for, for the moment. But the same question could be asked about the very next verse. So verse and that's what okay,
0: okay. other option. Yeah, uh, of course, yeah. Um, either God or Moses, ambiguity. When in doubt, the ministering angels.
2: Oh, perfect. So maybe it's neither. Maybe it's the ministering angels calling out. Okay, good. So three options. God, Moses, or four options. God, Moses, purposefully ambiguous, the ministering angels. Okay, so now we're on verse six. And now we're back to knowing who's doing what for a second. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. So this Vayikra, this proclamation has exactly the same ambiguity in the sense that God is the active person going somewhere, the same way that God came down and stood with Moses in verse five. Now in verse six, God is passing before him, right? As was foretold. That's the, I'm going to put my hand over your face and I'm going to pass before you. This is now happening. But then there's another calling out and it's right all panav on uh, his face, Moses's face, and he called out. So who's the he? It again could be God, or it could be Moses calling out, because um, Moses is the the closest referent would be would actually be Moses. But God is the last one who did anything, so maybe God is again the one calling out. So it's that same. You could argue both ways, and in this case, you have the same evidence as you had before from. Um, from the previous chapter from 33, um, 19, where we said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim before you the name Lord and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. So what is the grace that I grant the compassion that I show? What, what is that? That's potentially that's this proclamation, which is our 13 uh, divine attributes, right um, And obviously uh, I'm not even going to get into the complexities of like how that verse continues. Why do we stop it in the middle? why do we count 13? All of that actually aren't, aren't really my subject matter for today, but definitely lots to describe there. but I'll just translate what I said, right the Lord passed before him. And proclaimed, so it could be and God proclaimed, or and Moses proclaimed, or and both proclaimed, and the ministering angels proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgress, transgression, and sin. Um, and it continues Loina vote fine, fine, fine. Um and this all happened, Moses hastened to bow down low to the ground in homage and said, if I've gained your favor, O Lord, pray, let the Lord go in our midst, right? So it's not an accident that we actually started with this whole back and forth about, is God going to come with us? That's the beginning and the end of this conversation is God, you have to keep coming with us on this journey. So we, there's a, there's a, like a, a baseline conversation of God's coming with us. God's not coming with us, but there's this peak of like, what are the heights of human and divine intimacy, which Moses asks for explicitly, show me God your glory, and God God says, I'll show you as much glory as I possibly can, um, and, they have, and the moment is planned, and then the moment happens, it gets wrapped up in the creation of the second set of tablets, but it transpires, and the minute after it transpires, after that kind of peak moment, Moses says... Come with us. Let the Lord go in our midst. Even though we're a stiff-necked people, right? We we Moses basically says like we're as sinful as we ever were, and I still want you to come with us. Um, and um, right. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your own. Um, And God says, I hereby make a covenant before all your people. I will work such wonders as have not been wrought on all the earth or in any nation. All the people who are with you shall see how awesome the Lord's deeds, which I will perform for you. God basically says, yes, and I will distinguish you amongst all the people. And without any change, really, on behalf of the Jewish people. Yes, even though we are still a stiff necked people. Whereas at the beginning, the stiff neckness, that was the whole problem. God says, you guys are so stiff necked. And I'm so angry that if I come with you, I'll just destroy you so I can't come with you. And by the end, after this incredible moment, the end result is I'll come with you even though you're a stiff necked people and I won't destroy you and I'll be able to control myself and I'll be able to be in your midst. So then the question is, what happened in that moment? Because the the Jewish people and Moses, they stayed the same actually. And it's actually God that changed, right? So there's not, it's God that forgives, God that changes. And the Jewish people are as stiff-necked as ever. But we had this incredible meeting in, in the cleft of the rock, this incredible intimacy, and this revelation of a covenant, uh, right? I hereby, verse 10, I hereby make a covenant. A covenant based on the intimacy of that moment where God decides, yes, I'm ready to be in in an intimate relationship with you yeah
4: okay so all right i might be a little bit crazy because i'm hung up on pronouns right now though but it switches from capital h e to i is that significant
2: well there's um there's like quotation marks so it's a shift from narrator
4: to god okay i don't know i'm a little hung up on pronouns right now that's all
2: (laughs) aren't we all um (laughs) um, okay so now i want to Take a step back to the conversation we were having before and to say, all right, so if this moment, this meeting, this revelation of divine glory and the revelation of the 13 attributes, if that's the moment that changed everything. So like, how can we even be left with that ambiguity of who's the speaker? Um, But in fact, we even see it's not just like me and you who could kind of argue it both ways and see it both sides. It's actually, even in our most kind of traditional Torah commentator, so now we're in source 1A if you're following along the source sheet, I'm not gonna look at it too closely inside, but it seems like Rashi thinks that Moses is the one who's calling out and Rashban says, no, no, God is the one who's calling out. Um, so you have even, even like the basics of like, who is the speaker? We're not the only ones who are confused, um, but, I personally am very attracted to what um, what Dove suggested, which is the ambiguity is the point. The debate between Rashi and Rashbam, that's the point. Is it God? Is it Moses? Because have you ever um, uh, like had a friend who you're just so on the same wavelength of them that after you had a conversation, you couldn't remember who said what because like something they said is something you totally could have said. Um, and there's sort of like a, a physical piece of this also where like if you're hugging someone and like someone's stomach makes like a weird noise, and you're like not actually sure whether it was like your stomach or their stomach. Uh, I don't know whether that's like, a, like a, an experience you maybe have had before. Um, and um, right, there's like a type of intimacy where you like don't even know who said it. And maybe it doesn't even matter who said it. There was an experience that was so incredibly shared that who said what, when, who revealed what doesn't matter really because it's what it is is that the words themselves and the experience itself were so shared and so intimate and so combined that the details of who said what don't even matter because actually the intimacy of it was this kind of combination of me and you the closest that a human being has ever come to God but then the suggestion is well okay these 13 divine attributes are they something that Moses said about God or that God said about God's self? And the reason why that's important is if there's such a big difference between God saying, Yes, let me tell you something about myself, versus Moses saying to God, Let me tell you something about you. Um, right? It seems like that's a massive difference, right? God says, Yes, like you have to know this about me, <laughs> um, versus Moses saying, I know something about you that you don't even know about yourself. Now you could say, and if we riff on that ambiguity, um, maybe those are the same. Maybe when Moses said it to God, God was like, right. I know that about myself, actually. Like we both came to this understanding about me and my ability to be compassionate and and to give grace. We both came to that understanding kind of simultaneously in this incredible moment. Um, so then maybe you could live with that ambiguity. Um, or maybe you could say, it was both that God said it about God's self first and then Moses comes back and says it to God. And maybe they're they both calling it out one right after the other. Um, but we know for a fact that in other times, um, Moses seems to recall it as God said it. So if you look in Bamidbar 14, this is right after the sin of the spies um, and God is really mad at the people obviously again. And um, so here, just look at verse 17. Therefore, I pray, pray, let my Lord's forbearance be great as you have declared, as you, God, right? This is Moses. Moses is the speaker here. He's talking to God. As you, God, declared, saying, and now we're going to see this is the first time that the 13 attributes of divine mercy are used. To kind of talk God off the ledge. Um, so right, God, Moses says, You declare the Lord slow to anger abounding in kindness, Hasham archimer, ha, no se avon the f- uh, fasha, right? Um, uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression, the uh, yet not remitting all punishment, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children upon the third and fourth generations. Therefore, pardon, I pray the iniquity of this people according to your great kindness, as you have forgiven this people ever since Egypt. And then it works, right? Because God says, I pardon as you have asked. Pay attention to that line. I pardon as you have asked. That's a massive, I mean, of all of these words that we've been reading, basically our refrains throughout the um throughout the liturgy but that's that's a big one um I pardon as you have asked that's what we're all waiting to hear I pardon as you have asked um but so uh, whereas the first in the first instance in Shemote it's unclear who said it this instance Moses says it back to God and says God this is what you taught me to say um, and so now if we look at the Slichot liturgy itself, and I'm going to go back to sharing my screen so we can look at this together. we um, Look at the Slichot liturgy itself, um, where the, we're source three here. Um, and this is really like some quite early stuff happening, right, so we're, we're in the Ga'onic era, Rapsadia Gaon, Ga'ol, Ruf Amram Ga'on. These are kind of the frames of the Slichot liturgy um, and in and rav amram goon he says very explicitly <laughs> god you taught us to speak the 13 me and what are we asking for in this recall for us today the covenant of the 13 attributes as you um, as you in ancient times showed the humble one the humble one is moses Um, as it is written, right? Uh, And now we have the verses from Shemot. Lord descended in a cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed in the name of the Lord and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So those two proclaims, those are are ambiguous. Who's proclaiming them? So in Rav Amram, Gaon's understanding, God proclaimed them here. And now we are, we, the reciters of Sihot are proclaiming them back, which means that we are becoming Moses in this moment where Moses is becoming God, maybe, right? So if what's happening in that incredible moment of intimacy is like emerging between Moses and God, well, we can't become God, we the people saying, the best we could possibly become would be Moses, the human who got the closest to God. And so what we do is we read the Moshe lines of the script. And that's when we then recite the 13 right this In quote this always leads into the 13 divine a uh, rescation of the 13 divine attributes um which is exactly what moses does after the sin of the spies we now do it but after our own sins the sins of our own generation um okay so i know i only have a few minutes left but there's a few sources that we just like we must we must see them <laughs> um so um i want to look at a text that, so right, the slichot themselves pushed towards God said it. Um, and the Talmud in Masachat Rosh gives us this like very beautiful image of like, what would it mean for God to be reciting them? Because for God to be rec- saying those lines, lines that ultimately become a prayer to God, that's very strange, right? Like, God saying, oh, say this to me, and it will like elicit this response in me. Um, but like, shouldn't it be that humans do that thing? And then it elicits that response, not that God says like, let me put this in your mouth. That feels a little bit, a little bit cheap or a little bit fake. Like, how are we supposed to think about that? So the Gemara gives us a way to understand it. So Rabbi Yohanan says, were it not explicitly written in the verse, it would be impossible to say this as it would be insulting to God's honor, um, made right? It teaches, the verse teaches that the Holy One wrapped himself in a prayer shawl like a prayer leader and showed Moses the structure, the order of the prayer. So what is God doing when he is kind of saying in this in this understanding where God is the one kind of telling us, here's what you're supposed to do? What like what is what role is God playing there? God is the shaliach tibor, so God is the chazan, God is the prayer leader. So the main person leading prayers to God is actually God him, him or herself, God, Godself. Um, it, and that's like a really complicated image actually, but I think it becomes less complicated when we understand that what we're trying to commemorate is this like divine, human interaction that is like the most intimate moment that ever happened between people and god and what we're asking for is the same kind of grace that god showed the people at that time which is the people stayed the same and god changed which is like a crazy understanding of what we're praying for right we normally say we're looking for repentance for ourselves and for god once we repent god should forgive right but in this moment that's not what we're recreating. We're recreating. We're gonna stay the same, and God is gonna change. And God put on a talit like a prayer leader and showed us that we can be, um, we can be crazy enough to request something like that. We can be crazy enough to do that because God, Godself, dressed up like a like a shaliach dressed up like a chazan, and led us in that prayer the first time it ever happened. Just, just like such an intense thing and 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 what does god say when he showed when god showed this structure of prayer to the jewish people he said to him he said to moses whenever the whenever the jewish people sin let them act before me in accordance with this order this isn't says the gemara this is not a one time thing and we know it's not a one time thing because in the pentateuch it happens more than once but um, but people other than moses can even do this and can make such a brazen request Anytime the people sin, yeah, Sulaf and I can say there has Hazat, they should do this. The ani And I God, I'm gonna do that flippy thing that I did then. I'm gonna change and I'm gonna forgive them. Because you'll have recited these words, because you'll have reminded me of the incredible intimacy that God experienced with Moses and that we can kind of dress up as Moses or even potentially dress up as God. Hold that thought for a second. And recreate this scene. And Ravi Huda says, There is a covenant with the 13 attributes that they will never return empty handed, that they'll always be answered, um, which is just really kind of um, crazy. We're going to skip source five since I'm basically already at time. But source six, you have to see because our understanding is, right, God dressed up as a prayer leader. And so now the halacha is was recorded by Rav Avraham Gavner, the Magin of Raon. You must wear a talit when reciting the 13 midot at Slichod um, at night, is one of the few times when a Shalik Tibor uh, puts on a talit at night. Well, some places they do. I, I guess it's not totally true. If, you, if you're from certain customs, then the Shalik Tibor from our puts on a talit, but in many places, the, We don't put on a talit for mariv. And even in places where you don't normally put on a talit for for mariv, you do for slichot because of the smagin of ram. Um, And what are you doing when you put on your talit to recite slichot? What are you doing? Because we said before, oh, maybe you're becoming Moses. But when you're putting on your talit at night, when you wouldn't normally put on a talit because you're reciting slichot, who are you actually becoming? You're becoming God because God is the one who put on the plate. You're becoming a person, you're a person who's becoming Moses, who's becoming God, because there's a Moses and God kind of combination that's happening here. Okay, I'll take Rabbi Chaitowski's question, and then we're going to look at one more source, and then I'm going to be done. And I that all has to happen in the next three minutes. So keep it tight.
1: Okay, thank you. I'm not spoiling anything. Um, but whenever whenever there's a listing in the Torah, of attributes of God, whether it's this, or more precisely, when it says, Vahalachta you should walk in my ways, and then it's described what those ways are, whether we midrashically or the Torah itself. There always seems to be a link between the description and then putting into some kind of action what the description describes. So if, if we are saying, if the magic formula is... Hashem, Hashem, El-Rachum, merciful, slow to anger. Maybe the trick is that we need to, in the sense of imitating God, maybe we need to become God by doing those things. And the word in the Gemara says, Ya'asu, let them do. And it says, according to this order, another ambiguity is it the order of draping yourself in a talit and saying, or is it the order of you're going to say these things and they should be spurs to action? I, but, wonder, if, I wonder what you think about that. I'll and
2: what on. does it mean then to become, as people engaged in repentance, but also as people engaged in forgiveness vis-a-vis one another, right? So if in, in this dynamic between God, in this intimate dynamic between God and Moses, We have the forgiver doing a lot of the work, but this is a time of the year where we're, and especially actually in a Shemitah year where this is when loans get forgiven also, right? So this is a time when we're doing a lot of forgiving. What does it mean then to do the forgiving? It means to forgive the way God forgives, to give unconditional forgiveness. Forgiveness of you haven't changed at all and I'm still gonna forgive you. Um, So I wonder whether when we take the God role, that's actually calling on us to be really, really good forgivers um, also. And I think I like that idea that there's like an ask that comes with this as well, for sure. Um, I wanna just look at one more text here because like if we're talking about God potentially praying then we have just some amazing gemaras that you just can't walk away from this uh, from this class without seeing. Um, so this is, we're in Brahut 7a and we'll just look at them quickly in English. Um, But where do we know that the Holy One, blessed be He, prays? And this is a verse that also shows up in um, the literature. I will, from Isaiah 56, I'll bring them to my holy mountain, make them joyful in the house of my prayer. The verse does not say the house of their prayer. Rather my prayer. And here we know that the Holy One prays. So now we have God wrapping himself in a talit like a chazan, like a We have God praying. We have potentially, but like when God prays, what does it mean for God to pray? Who is God praying to? So that's the Gemara's next question: My matzlei, what does God pray? And if the answer is me. Rav Zutra Bartuvia says that, Rav said, God says, may it be my will. Right? God prays to God itself that my mercy will overcome my anger and may my mercy prevail over my other attributes and may I conduct myself towards my children with the attribute of mercy and may I enter before them beyond the letter of the law. Should I be more merciful towards them than they deserve, which is exactly what our story has been all about. And so what would it mean if instead of saying Moses is the one who called out, which maybe often seems like in some ways the most obvious read of these sources, particularly because when we are recreating them, it seems like we're becoming Moses, but actually maybe it's that we're becoming God and we're becoming God, praying to God's self, reminding God of God's core prayer to God's self, which is may it be my will before myself that my mercy will overcome my anger. That what we're tapping into is God's like, when we recite the 13 divine attributes, is we're tapping into God's kind of primary wish for God's self. And that's the best way to pray for someone. And that's the best way to parent and to teach, right? Is to motivate someone and push them in the direction that they're already going in. So too, when we pray to God, we're pushing God in the direction that God already wants to go in. And that's the type of prayer that God wants the most, the type of blessing that God wants the most, because we have a story about a high priest who enters the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. And he has this vision of not God himself, but an angel of God, a katriel, the angel, a katriel. Um and seated upon a high and exalted throne, and this angel representing God says, "Yishmael, my son, bless me, right? Ishmael, and Yishmael khalin gadol, blesses God, or prays to God, may it be your will that your mercy overcome your anger, your mercy prevail over your other attributes, May you act toward your children with the attribute of mercy, and may you enter that before them beyond the letter of the law, i.e., the exact prayer that God prays for Godself. Ishmael prayed for God, and we see that it's reset, received because in the Anali the Rosho, God nodded his head, uh, or the angel representing God nodded his head, accepted the blessing, and and the Gemara kind of like moralizes this. <laughs> teaches that you shouldn't take the blessing of an ordinary person lightly, you should take blessings from everyone. Um, So just to kind of wrap it all together, when at Slichot and over and over again on Yom Kippur, we recreate that incredibly intimate moment between God and Moses. What that moment gives us is a model of what forgiveness is, a model of divine forgiveness, wherein we are being forgiven, even though we haven't changed, which is the highest thing we sinners can possibly hope for, to be forgiven, even in our stiff-necked, kind of ongoing state of sinfulness. That's what we're praying for, but it's an audacious, crazy prayer. How do we get the audacity to do it? Because... God taught us to, God did it God's self, God and Moses have this almost like fusion moment where we can't even tell who's actually speaking. And we wanna recreate that intimacy and that love, a love that can transcend anger. And the way that we're allowed to do that is because God wants God's love for us to transcend God's anger for us. That's the prayer that God wants for God's self and the prayer that we can give God the most. Um, And not only are we recreating that moment in Exodus when we say these divine attributes and when we pray in this way, but we're even recreating Rabbi Ishmael Kohen Gadol's um, encounter on Yom Kippur with God. Um, And the last thing I'll just say is that these these things all happened, the date of this interaction is according to many sources, um, Yom Kippur itself. So not only are we recreating it through the words we're saying, but we're creating it kind of when we when the kind of reached their climax on Yom Kippur, or we're recreating we it on the day it happened, um and asking for that level of intimacy and conditionless forgiveness once again through a prayer that God taught us, that God recited about or God's self. Um and so my um my birkat head my uh, blessing of an ordinary person is that we will all um merit to uh, to recreate that moment through our throat. Tulo- uh, at
3: Sikho and throughout this high holiday
0: season. Beautiful. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So powerful. So, Hevra, we have uh, friends, we have uh, about 10 minutes here. If you'd like to unmute yourself and ask uh, a question, we'd love to hear from you. You're also welcome to write in the chat, of course. Just raise your hand or unmute yourself. Yes, hi, Rav
3: Dove. Uh, uh, there's one thing that uh, I'll simply say it. Uh, it it concerns me, meaning that I disagree with you on one thing, which is how I, I don't understand how you can say that the people do not change, and only Hakadosh Baruch changes. It seems to me, as the Rabbi Ch- Chaitovsky point, pointed out, that the understanding of Amirat Yud Gimel Midot is, in truth, not simply a recitation, it's not that mystical, but it, that it has to be. Uh, an an expression of of a truth in the petitioner and if that's the case the petitioner changes tremendously that's my question
2: well here's where it comes from which is in uh shmutlamid uh tet right so exodus 34 9 um um after the Thirteen divine attributes are revealed. The next, the next verse, right? Who Moses hastened to bow to the ground in homage and said, "If I've gained your favor, O Lord, pray let the Lord go in our midst, even though this is a stiff-necked people." Ki anche orfu, which means that right and the stiff-neckedness that was the problem from the beginning. That problem is still there, right? Ki ki anche orfu. Nevertheless, despite the fact that we have retained our stiff necked nature. All and right. with that the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: So do you think, but think that's true today? You think that's true today also?
2: Do I think that this is a way to get around having to atone or to do any of the work of tshuva? No, of course you should do tshuva. But at the same time, when we're saying the 13 divine attributes, we're making the most audacious type of request for forgiveness that could ever be made. Forgive me even though I've done no work, Uh, which is a crazy kind of request, right? It's exactly what you're saying. It's crazy. But I think that's exactly what Moshe does. That moment, it's a crazy audacious moment. And that's what we're recreating when we recite these. And I I think it's a very powerful prayer because there are certain areas of, uh, of problematic areas of our lives where we know that we're being problematic, we know that we're doing the wrong thing, but surely there are countless other areas of our lives where we don't know that we're doing the wrong thing. We can't know, our minds are so small that they can't even comprehend it. And we want forgiveness for those things too. And so the only way to ask for forgiveness for the sins we don't even know about is to say, forgive totally. me, even though I'm very unlikely to change things that I don't know about.
0: I love it. I love it. Just before we go to Aglaya, I just wanted to, you know, add add there and see and your thought also. And, you know, there's the, there's the Dayan, there's the judge here and in the paradigm of justice. And then there's the parent, there's the have Malkinu and the like, um, in a paradigm not of justice, but of love. And the forgiveness feels very different. In a justice, Diane uh, sense, and from a from an avinu ma'kinu parental love sense, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder which of those works for you as you think about sluchot.
2: No, it's both. That's what's so amazing, right? But that at the end of the day, we recognize like, unless something crazy happens, we're going to be doing this again next year. You know, like on Tisha above, we say like, oh, hopefully we'll never do this again next year. But on Yom Kippur we're not saying that right we're saying next year please God the temple will be rebuilt and and we'll do the actual thing as it's described in the Torah and not just like a liturgical recreation of it though I don't know how the Shammai Arts Institute thinks about that but um (laughs) right but like we're not praying to not have Yom Kippur again next year there's no world in which humans aren't gonna like sin again because that's almost like definitional to humanity maybe And so in that case, like it needs to be both. It needs to be, yes, we're being judged. Yes, we're trying to change. Yes, there's some kind of justice and like an understanding of the inevitability of sin that requires divine mercy.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Aglaia. you want to jump in and then we'll see if we have time for one more after you.
4: Okay. Hi. Okay, so you've made me giddy, which is dangerous. You don't want to make me giddy because I start doing weird things, okay? So right now, the weird thing is I've been possessed by the self I had when I was in my early 20s. So I'm not sure if anyone in here is actually familiar with any Professor Tolkien's work or anything like that, though, but um, the Silmarillion. At the beginning, he's talking, he's forming his own creation story, which, you know, like I said, I read it back then. And what he's explaining is that the angels, you know, the God character has all of the angels singing, And some of the angels get a little attitude problem and they start singing their own little, you know, thing because they don't want to do what God tells them to do. And so, but then God comes in and says, you don't really get it. Everything that you did, I already did before. You have nothing without me. So I already did it. So the idea for me that God is actually doing his own prayer to himself and telling us to do his prayer to himself makes perfect sense to me. Because, I mean... So that's why I'm kind of coming at it from the perspective of, well, are we able to even, like, what prayer do we have? What prayer was actually created by humans? Are there any? Or does it just make perfect sense that God created prayers to himself?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I love that image of like, God being kind of like the choir master of <laughs> all the prayer happening all over everywhere. Um, and that in a certain sense, right, like the only way to sort of, um, not make prayer just like crazy audacious is to understand, yeah, like God, God taught us how to do it. God, God, God permitted this. Um, but in the Jewish tradition, we definitely have an understanding that some prayers were invented by people. We understand that the uh, daily prayers were both invented by the rabbis, but also established by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were also people. Um, and so that's, that's definitely like a, a human hand. Um, and, um, and, and lots of other prayers that we were saying, including some of the ones I mentioned here, we, we even like know exactly who the author was and when they wrote it, or how you are as a person or how i going person. Um, so
4: I don't know. Like- I was feeling kind of like I did back then. And this whole idea that can we even write anything that God didn't already put in our heads to write. So in other words, though, without God actually directing us, I don't know. But then I'm, I was, like I said, back then I was going through some, ironically sobriety induced kind of weird phase so anyway
0: (laughs) awesome awesome anyone else want to jump in
4: I like what um what Ethan wrote
2: in the in the comments there the importance of having autonomy over one's name and the parallel between present-day challenges people in the LGBTQ plus community might face in the same light right that like the same way that God teaches us how to interact with God and like the level of audacity permitted in those interactions so too we can let people teach us like what how to interact with them and that there's a certain very special kind of autonomy and, and respect by God saying here's what I want you to say to me and us saying okay here's what we're saying to you um and and that is as maybe a model for for how we interact with other people and maybe they say here are my boundaries here's how to show me respect we can say great here are your boundaries and I'm going to show you respect in the way you want it. Um, I think that's very powerful. I like that a lot, Ethan.
0: Okay, Rabbi Leah, we'll give you the closing words here.
2: Okay, well, it was just such a pleasure to learn with you all and to, um, and to share some insights that hopefully you will uh, motivate and, and, and carry you carry your chilot, um and help you kind of stand and join in that incredible moment of intimacy between God and Moses that, that the Torah lets us into and that are liturgy kind of stands us right there uh, in in the cleft of the rock with god's hand covering our eyes um as we recite these these words over and over again over the next couple of weeks i hope you can you can feel the intimacy of that moment in your in your tofielod in your prayers um and uh, it was wonderful to be able to share some some thoughts and some audacity, potentially, <laughs> with um with all of you today, and um Rosh Moleh always uh, very very honored to be uh, just in some small way uh you know connected to the amazing work that you do. So thank you for that too. Thank you,
0: thank you so much. Uh, um, friends, we just want to invite you next week to learn with Rabbi Yissachar Katz on Wednesday, the twenty first, on Shomea Kaona. Hearing legally counts as speaking. Creating a community which is inclusive. Of the blind, the deaf, and the infirm. Um, thank you, Rabbi Leah Sana, for this great teaching, for all of your participation, Abba and BMHBJ for your partnership. Wishing you everyone Shana to to God, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. Yes. Cool. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.